Jones was just 16 years old when he appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show, performing as the Artful Dodger from Oliver in a duet with Georgia Brown. I know that I'd go anywhere for your particular night changed my whole way of thinking around. If I hadn't have been on the Ed Sullivan show that night and wanted that reaction as much as I did, that I wouldn't have taken part in the monkeys. If there hadn't have been a Beatles, there would never have been a monkeys. There would have been no need to put the Beatles on TV once a week. Welcome to this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chin. I'm John Stone. So, picking up from two weeks ago, we were talking about female all-stars. We did indeed put up that poll. And people responded? Yeah, and we actually got some some responses here. They're right. telling us that we actually made some decent choices here. The overall winner was Susanna Haas. She did a bunch of stuff for the 4th of July telecast on CNN. Ah, she did a couple performances. Beatles associate Peter Asher was actually playing guitar on Eternal Flame and uh, uh, Manic Monday on the holiday show. That's very cool. And then behind her, a uh, couple of your choices, uh, Chrissy Hine and Nancy Wilson. Hard to top them. Then Sheila E. and Cheryl Crow. Good choices. Between us, we chose all of those. Then you have to add in a bass player, and Amy Mann got the highest number of votes as a bass player. Poor Kathy Valentine was not in the list. <laughs> I got a couple votes here. <laughs> well, you know, general public knowledge, I don't know that Kathy Valentine is really a name that a lot of people would necessarily remember. Uh, and then some of the other people mentioned who probably wouldn't uh, really fit in, uh, Tal Wilkenfeld, uh, Tina Weymouth, uh, and uh, Susie Quattro. Susie Quattro would fit, but again, she doesn't have a big hit. In England, she was a bigger thing there. And after some thought, we never even mentioned Dusty Springfield, who had a bunch of hits and was... What does she play, though? Is she a keyboard player? Hair. (laughs) She had the best hair. (laughs) But she didn't didn't actually play an instrument. I mean, you know, that's the reason we didn't consider someone like Belinda Carlisle. This is true. Well, you know, the uh, Roy Orbison Black and White Knight always handled it great. They had the the group of male and female backup singers, you know. And when you think about the people who were involved there, quite a few great people. And then uh, Rick Glover of the, the Fans on the Run actually says that he had spoken with Nancy Wilson. And so Nancy has apparently on at least one occasion and probably a couple gotten her people in touch with Ringo's people and they never phoned back. <laughs> well, that's that's a shame. But as you pointed out, there's only been one female in the entire uh, history of the All Star Band. So. Yeah, I mean, we don't actually know what's going on or or how Ringo chooses it. Although, you know, I, I still do kind of think it's just more or less whoever comes into his field of vision at that moment <laughs> in time. Right, his purview. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it's all feel and vibe and the. And the whole thing. And I don't know, may, maybe his management is more involved than, than we know. Yeah, but. I mean, in the early days, it was uh, Pepsi and 
those guys which were actually behind it and while they're not directly involved there may still be you know agents and clients and all of that sort of business being dealt with behind the scenes right the business so this week uh, we're going off into uh the land of the monkeys yeah i just recently uh, on a lazy sunday afternoon flipped over onto amazon prime and caught Daydream Believer, the story of the monkeys. It's a, a biopic from 2000 depicting the origins and the story, the, the, the story of the monkeys. Yeah. We get a fake Jimi Hendrix and we get three fake Beatles. <laughs> Poor Ringo doesn't show up at the party scene, which was in Britain. Yes. Who's throwing us a party? The Queen. No. Princess Margaret. No. The Beatles. The Beatles are throwing a party in our honor! Oh, man! Oh, man! John, Paul, George, Ringo! And us! Hey, Davey. You met George? Yeah. Hey, mate. Hello. You want some? It'll really blow your mind. Brian threw that for the monkeys when the monkeys came over on tour. Right. I think one of his associates actually put the tour on. Uh, the same people who put on Beatle tours in, in Britain brought the monkeys over. And uh, so there was, there was a business connection there as well. Although there was more of a phenomena connection. I mean, the monkeys were huge at that point. They had just taken the word by storm. How huge were they? It's, I've always kind of wondered that. I mean, they always say that, that the monkeys picked up on Beatlemania, and you certainly see that one episode of the TV show where they're trying to make it look like it was as big a phenomenon. I would say that Beatlemania would far drown out something like BTS these days. <laughs> right. And that's that's not nothing against BTS mania or One Direction mania. You know, those guys have faithful followers, but it's not like it was in 64. No. And you can kind of look back, at, and a lot of the, the people who come up and have got big fan followings aren't doing what the Beatles did. How big was Monkey Mania? And, you know, from a commercial perspective, they built on what Brian had started. And, you know, every product that once had. Beatles faces on them did have monkeys faces on them in 1966. Monkey boots inspired by the new heroes, the monkeys. Monkey boots, they open your eyes when you see them. They make you come alive when you wear them. Monkey boots from $7.99 to $11.99. I think they benefited from the Beatle experience. You know, they, they knew right off that they could make a lot of money off that. Oh, who made that money? Was it all Screen Gems and, and Ravelson and uh, Raybert? Or, I mean, you know, it certainly wasn't the band who made the money. No, they were, in effect, burned like everybody else for a long time. You know, I think that was part of Mike Nesbitt's view of the monkeys, is that the money wasn't going to them. They were just being paid as actors. But at the same time, they were being required really to go out and play concerts i have no idea what that arrangement was there's a new book coming out by andrew sandoval within the next few weeks which is going to be a huge monkey expose yeah i've heard it described as the monkey equivalent of uh, lewison's chronicles exactly exactly and and he's the guy to do it and he's certainly uh knows a lot and i mean he right now he he is working with uh nesmith and dolans on their upcoming tour so he's in the know and he's been part of the the repackaging of the monkeys catalog so it should be interesting it's an interesting story uh how it all got started and the first thing anybody looks at the tv show they're gonna say oh this is you know hard day's night and help repackaged but it actually wasn't quite that it became that but the original idea rafelson was in a folk band in mexico in 1953 with three other guys was it three yeah it was it was a four-man band uh you know that wasn't uh really necessarily a thing at that point certainly not in 1953 i think he 
he kind of described it as, you know, four musicians living in a house leading zany lives was, if nothing else, uh, prescient. He certainly was ahead of the curve on that. And then even you look at the early rock and roll, you know, Buddy Holly and the Crickets, that is actually much more in the monkeys mold than, than the Beatles were, really. Well, the, the monkeys had several singers, but the voice of the monkeys uh, was several people. <coughs> David Jones and Mickey Dolenz, and to a degree, Mike Nesmith. Yeah, Mike Nesmith later... Dolan's was actually probably the best singer out of the four. I mean, you know, Davey had that cute voice. Right. He, he had a Broadway voice. Which a Broadway, is, you know, exactly. And, and in some ways, I, I I never got past him being the artful dodger. You know, in a way, that was his vocal approach. Uh, Broadway show tunes um, was more uh, his thing. I can't imagine any of the other guys doing a song like what was this? Uh, he did a song called um, the day we fall in love, which is virtually all spoken and is hokey as hell. Well, <laughs> I mean, even the Nelson song that, that he sings lead on cuddly toy, you know, which you want to talk misogynistic. There's a song that's misogynistic. <laughs> <laughs> right. True. And he did it again uh, on daddy's song for head. It was a, Nielsen tune that was bouncy and certainly the lyrics were not, but uh, I mean, it was about a father who had abandoned his child. Uh, a favorite topic of Nielsen's. <laughs> you know, he just had that style. E- even as the group went on and they began contributing their own music more, his songwriting style was kind of still in that vein that is Broadway or Tin Pan Alley or something like that. So Ravelson hooked up with Bert Schneider and they formed uh, Raybert Productions and they actually went and pitched this idea of a musical group having zany adventures as a TV show to Screen Gems in what's thought to be 1960 or 1961. I I didn't realize that. I I haven't. Long before the Beatles were a known entity now i mean you know obviously that would have been a very different tv show if it would have been produced back when he pitched it it probably would have been more like dobie gillis i could see that at that point i guess the tv studios were thinking well they were thinking the same thing that decca was thinking guitar groups are on the way out (laughs) right why do we want to do this when rock and roll as a fad is just about over with Right, because that time period would have been uh, right around the time Elvis was getting out of the army. His whole approach to music changed at that point, and he never really cut much rock and roll after that. He let the colonel run his career at, at that point in time. Right. That is, of course, the question that John Lennon apparently asked him is like, why didn't you do rock and roll anymore when they met in 65 in Los Angeles? We'll buy that. <laughs> <laughs> The next time that they actually cross paths is on that first Sullivan show, the the February 9th Sullivan show in the evening. And the fact that David Jones was on that particular episode. We asked Georgia if she'd like to talk about something tonight, kind of light and airy. And all she seems to want to do is to talk about her protege that she's going to present here. And it's an interesting story. Because he plays the artful dodger in the in show. In the show, with that's right. Davy, uh, there you go, man. Come on. <laughs> Davy started um, as a jockey. He was found. He used to sing in the uh, while training the horses. And somebody told him he should go to London and make his fame, which he did. He got into Oliver in London. Right now, appearing for the very first time on network television, here is very young Davy Jones. Well, the cast of Oliver was on that show. Right. The male lead in the role of the Artful Dodger was Davy Jones. Who, being British, was fully aware of Beatlemania. Yeah, and uh, that was apparently the first time he saw it up close and personal. And, you know, he, much like John Lennon in his description of, uh, you know, seeing these people come to the theater uh, for the various rock stars in Liverpool, you know, it's like, that looks like a good gig. I want some of that. <laughs> right. That's where Lennon got that line. 
<laughs> um, and at that time, Michael Nesmith was just getting out of the Air Force, and he had decided to that he was going to be a, a musician. And so he, you know, wrote and got a recording contract, not with any kind of major label, but he was pursuing that life. Now, um, it should be noted that his mother had already invented liquid paper in Dallas, Texas at that point. Right. And I don't know how big it had gotten by 63, 64, but it was enough that they knew that this was going to be a multi-million dollar product and that he would eventually be set for life on inheritance off of uh, the royalties of liquid paper. Huh. It's an interesting question how that knowledge factored into what he decided to do. And it's probably possible to ask him because he does a lot of stuff with fans. Um, there was a guy named, uh, working at the publishing company I was working at as a singer-songwriter as a, and, and a member of a band there named um, uh, Barry Friedman. His name was the Reverend Fraser Mohawk in the acid world. And, uh, and he came in and he said, hey, man, you should go down for this. This, is, this looks cool. Show up. They're having open auditions. So, yeah, that was the ad that I saw. So the Beatles went on. I think one of the scenes that would influence the Monkees TV show as it was to be is, you know, they always talk about the Can't Buy Me Love sequence out in the field, and that certainly had some influence. But I think, you know, Chasing After Ringo right before the concert is a much more Monkees-esque sequence from that film. Right. I'm sure it was a, a whole thing. Hard Day's Night certainly colored how the monkeys developed, as well as, you know, the powers that be certainly could see this phenomenon at that point and go, well, how can we make money on that? So it was a perfect idea. It was right at the right time. Well, and, you know, really, American television would change to a certain extent courtesy of Hard Day's Night and Help. You got you have got things like on the Dick Van Dyke show where uh, Chad and Jeremy show up uh, as uh, the Redcoats, I believe. Right. I mean, to someone that doesn't own 25% of these boys, those teenage noises are horrible. To me, they're dollar signs. He's our manager. He discovered us. He's regretted it already, haven't you? <laughs> we made a million dollars yet, have we, Mr. Manager? Well, I don't know, Ernie. I haven't opened the mail this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I know you kids are probably dead tired, but if you could just show us a little bit of what you do, we could write the introductions. Well, they'll do a song from their new album, The Redcoats Are Coming. I want to do the romantic one. Which one's it? I want to hold your breath. Everyone wanted to do a Beatles thing on their TV show. The Gilligan's Island did like the mosquitoes showing up on the island. Yes. I, I remember a reference um, to the Beatles in Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, by the way, did Miss Hathaway mention whether she had located the Beatles? Beatles? Oh, I hope they ain't got into her garden. Them is the peskiest bugs. Especially the potato beans. Oh, no, no. This is a group that sings and plays musical instruments. The tickets, you say? Oh, yes, they're famous. They appear all over. They make a fabulous amount of money. Singing Beatles, huh? Well, let me know if Miss Jean finds them. I'd pay a quarter to see that myself. Oh, no, no. You're still... They're like... Uh... Well, never mind. I, I saw a picture of them, and I'm still confused. Yeah. So... And even the Flintstones, they had their, their Beatles episode. Well, you know, that, those are just indicators of how huge the phenomenon of Beatlemania was. And there had been nothing like that. Now, the closest thing probably had been the earlier pop stars, Elvis Presley and uh, Sinatra went through a lot of that. And, uh, but neither, neither of them were ever really sort of television, of course, Television was a was really in its infancy at that point, right? Uh, yeah, there are all sorts of reasons um, why this all came together. It, it was uh, post World War II, and there was money floating about for the children of those people, and so a lot of advertising and things like that skewed much younger at that point. It, the birth of the teenager is 
right. uh, you will see people call it. Right. So, yeah, that was part of it. It, it all came together. One of the reasons why there won't be a phenomenon like that again is because so many things came together. How could you plan that? Then help would actually serve much more as the template for what any individual episode of the monkeys would be like i think goofy bad guys introducing a scene with a small explanation ringo ringo and the tiger right and so uh yeah the the style of that was was more like it you know i've always felt like help the movie help was uh it was a movie commissioned it's a goofy story it it's uh them as characters of themselves rather than the more realistic approach of a hard based night. Well, that's um, what John says. They were extras in their own film. Right. And so, um, which in America explains the, the soundtrack music, you know, you could say, yes, uh, it was the record company eking out. Yep. Another album somewhere down the line by including just, the seven film songs, but there was a part of that that had nothing to do with the Beatles as a group. But ironically, it's it was to a certain extent it, it was it was a different style, but it was also an equally valid bit of filmmaking. Yeah, I mean it's an enjoyable film. The the, the colorful pop art mid mid to uh, late sixties ethos is. All there and help. Yeah. And the dialogue is actually much smarter than anyone would give it credit for. Clang and the uh, the, the Catholic uh, bishop or whatever yeah. having lunch, you know, that scene is just priceless. Yeah. Yeah. There's all sorts of good stuff. <laughs> what he calls the, the beatle. <laughs> that introduces sort of the zany action and also the non sequiturs, the thing like. Uh, when they're landing in the Bahamas, uh, the, you see the guys uh, bringing in the plane playing ping pong. <laughs> right. Uh, surrealistic kind of thing, which I think is, it was big in, in Britain at that time. And it also would strongly influence, you know, Monty Python. Oh, very uh, much so. A couple of years later. The, the shows at the time, which years before, Monty Python came around, the members of Monty Python were all taking part in the production of a variety of television shows. From the goons to the Beatles and then back again. Right. That's where all of that came in. But that's also sort of all sort of brewing in this monkey stew. Yes. Because Rafelson and Schneider, on the back of Hard Day's Night and Help, were able to sell their idea. People were certainly willing to put money into this project because it could play off of what was a huge thing, Beatlemania. So it was a much easier sell, I think. And the instruction was, make it kind of like Hard Day's Night uh, meets the Marx Brothers. Uh, And so that was the basis. That was the script that existed when I came in there. Now, here's a question. I mean, uh, you look at someone like uh, Candy Leonard's book, Beatleness. You know, she says that the monkeys were groomed as the pop phenomena to take over when it was apparent that the Beatles weren't, were going to be moving on. Do you think that's necessarily the case? No, I don't think it's the case at all, actually. I, you know, I question the use of the word groomed. I mean, I think they had a view of what they wanted to do. And so when they went out and looked for these four people to play these parts, they were looking for character types. And when you consider that a lot of the monkeys was made up on the spot to some degree, then it's really their personalities that were in the stories. What did they advertise for and what did they want out of the four characters? The ad, if I had the ad right, it was insane young men with what Ben Frank's types. Whoever they got for the Nesmith role was was going to be the John Lennon of the monkeys. Kind of sort of the leader and the someone in front of the group. Right. But the, you know, I think the the uh the images of each beetle uh had become so defined at that point 
you know, John the, 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 the witty, the witty one and the cute right, one and, the, cute. and the, the quiet one and the other one. <laughs> right. The goofy one. The goofy um, one. Whatever you want to say know, about Ringo. So, so you, uh, you're looking kind of for that sort of, you know. Dynamic. Yes. So, yeah, that was the ad that I saw. The one that asked for Ben Franks types. Yeah, you know yeah. what that means? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, guys with granny glasses after 4 a.m. Right. And that was as much Marx Brothers as it was Beatles, I think, in terms of characters. Well, certainly Lennon viewed it as such. What became Nesmith was Lennon, but it was also, you know, the Groucho of the group. What do you want? Well, what are you going to do in there, Groucho? Are you going in to listen to Beatles? You're going in and get drunk. You wouldn't dare. Are you really? Of course I am. Free drink, I'll go anywhere. You bet your life. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very funny answer. Right. So they were looking for types. I think that the initial advertisement was just basically a code for we're looking for hip kids. Well, Stephen Stills went out for the Peter Tork role. Right. If you've seen the um, the audition tapes of that, they all switched roles all the time. In one scene, Mickey would be playing this particular guy, and then the next scene, he'd be playing the other guy. So they were kind of trying to look for fits out of work. So I don't know that Stephen Stills was necessarily going after the Peter Tork role. He was looking to fit one of the roles. Whatever you're looking for. I mean, it was going to be a paying gig. You know, that's that's cool. Well, and they uh, were washing dishes at the time. Right. So you just think that here in L.A. were struggling musicians looking for whatever opportunity might come their way. So a lot of people showed up for those auditions. Turns out that they already knew about David Jones and had him in mind. Because he was British and because he was cute. Right. Nesmith was probably the last of the forecast. I was wearing a... A wool hat that uh, had to do with riding a motorcycle around, keep the hair out of my eyes, no helmet laws at the time. And so they didn't know who the people were that auditioned, and I became wool hat. Because uh, as you mentioned, Nesmus didn't really consider himself as much of an actor. No. He considered himself a a musician and a songwriter. Right. Exactly. And that takes up the main part of his... I guess I would call it an audition tape. You know, they would, he goes in and talks to the producers and they ask him questions and they see how he comports himself. And, you know, he clearly can speak well and wittily. So, but he talks mostly about his uh, career. Apparently, they didn't care at all whether they could play any instrument. They wanted to make sure that whoever they cast could sing, but it wasn't like, are you a professional singer? They all say that, you know, after the project was going, it occurred to someone that, well, if we have this band, they have to be doing some sort of music. So I don't know that it was really a part of the initial conception of what was required. Bert and uh, uh, Bob tweaked it a little bit to get music in there and there was a lot of other kinds of things that were going on it was more the personalities i think they kind of just left the music up to don kirshner at that point but yes they did but that had decision had to be made yeah someone in the corporate had to go let's get don kirshner to oversee this Uh, i think voice and heart actually were connected with the project before kirshner came aboard they had produced, I think, three songs for the, the show, the project. One was the Monkey's theme, then Last Train to Clarksville, and I think it was I Want to Be Free. Two of which were songs that are have known Beatle connections. Uh, Last Train to Clarksville, they admit, was them trying to rewrite Paperback Writer. Great record. They, they'd heard the end of Paperback Writer on the radio, and it's like, ooh, I like that. Yeah. While it's not a direct fit, you can certainly see the connection between the two songs. Right. And I Want to Be Free is yesterday, kind of. They knew that they would need a ballad ballad with strings behind it. Although the structure of I Want to Be Free is not really all that much like yesterday, I don't think. No, not at all. I think it almost is more connected with As Tears Go By. Play the three songs together. You say which two are connected. (laughs) Right. Torque had been highly involved in the New York folk scene. So he definitely was a musician. Um, 
Dolan's was a TV star. He, he, he had never sat behind the drums before he went in for the monkeys. Right. The fact that he learned to do that for the TV show is amazing. But who would have guessed he had this great voice? Yeah. And he still does. Yes, he does. He, he has managed to keep his voice much better than McCartney has. Yeah. There's a new so- a song on their last album. Uh, came out like three years ago. Good Times, I think it's called. That I think is one of the best songs they ever did. It's called Me and Magdalena. And Mickey and Mike sing it. And it's just, it's one of the best songs they ever did. Hands down. Says me. <laughs> so then you end up having these particular four guys. In those audition tapes, um, there's probably six or seven other actors that come and go throughout the different scenes playing different roles. So, you know, there were people being considered, but they those are the four they, they picked. I can't make decisions, no, it's the truth. No, see, these guys have boots on, you know, and like I didn't know, I was told to dress casual, so I came in a plaid shirt and my surfer tennis, you know, and my blue Levi's, and then these guys have Beatles stuff on, you know, with a little Elephant boy! It's funny, he's been asking about you too. <laughs> so their first album, that was largely Boyce and Hart and the Candy Store Prophet. Right, although early on there were two record-making sides. Boyce and Hart preferred Mickey's voice, and the New York part of it, Kirshner, who brought in Carol King and Gary Goffin and Neil Diamond, they preferred Davy's voice for them. Well, and you look at the frequency at which these records were coming out, you, they always like to put in those commercials, the, in 1967, the Monkees sold more records than the Beatles and the Stones. Yeah, but they had four albums out. And it's not true anyway. If you Google it today, Google the the sacred, sanctified search engine, guess what you'll read? We sold 35 million records, more than the Beatles and the Stones combined. It's also- I made it up! It has amazed me how it has gone around the world and entered into fact when I know for a fact it's not true. Even if it's not true, it's not far from it. They were, they were certainly in the ballpark, if not actually outselling them. Right. Well, they had the monkeys first, and then more of the monkeys. And headquarters was also in '67, and right. So it was Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones. Right. It had four records out between October of 1966 and November of 1967. Right. At the same time, you know, you go okay. So the Beatles were still selling Revolver like crazy, but Revolver had already been out. You were talking. In the States, we what did we get? I guess we got Yesterday and Today. Right. Overseas, they had Collection of Beatles Oldies. And then you, you had all the way to May to Pepper. And then at the end of the year, they would have Magical Mystery Tour. And the Stones weren't doing too badly either. So, But still, it's like they're kids buying records. And from what they say today, it's like, okay, you, you had a certain number of kids that had gotten to be a little bit older teenagers and into their early college years that were going off on the pepper thing and their younger brothers and sisters were the ones who were really into the monkeys well that was a fair assessment it it certainly occurred in my family my little sister was way into the monkeys two older siblings were with the beatles if the beatles were still doing covers they might have covered some of those songs just you look at who these songwriters are the whole brill building folks goffin and king that's really kind of amazing to me that they were putting all their effort into this band. Yeah. And some great songs, Pleasant Valley Sunday, Porpoise Song. I mean, shit, they gave them a bunch of great stuff. It's also a little bit stunning to think that the television show only lasted two seasons. Right. Now, the first season was was a very long season. It's like 35, 36 episodes. Yeah. One of the, the arguments that Nesbeth had with the uh, people who were making all the money was that whereas Don Kirster would always take credit for being this great selector of the music, Nesbeth said, you know, the music is selling because we're on TV. You know, we, we have a, a platform with which to uh, successfully sell our music. And so it, it can as well be us making that money as it is all these others. So, And between the first and the second season of the TV show, you can see 
the influence of what was going on in the general rock and roll scene coming into play on the TV show. Mickey started to wear that poncho. The mop top sort of disappear a little bit in favor of uh, not quite mustaches and beards, but longer hair, more hippie style, while still acceptable to the general public, I think. They were young men living in L.A., and Rafelson and Snyder were open enough to let that blossom in that second show. I know that, that those two were also becoming more interested in movies. They were going to do uh, Easy Rider. Five Easy Paces. Right. And their good friend was a guy named Jack Nicholson, who was also trying to make his big splash. So they weren't as involved in the series and were willing to let them kind of evolve. I think that they needed to shed the monkeys. I think they needed to get rid of the whole thing. So they decided that we will come up with a way to assist the monkey suicide. So the band itself, as a band, Headquarters was really the first album where they were sort of mostly in charge. Let's talk about the Wrecking Crew. We really haven't mentioned them much. Well, they were huge in in that sound. For all the crap the monkeys got for not playing on their own records, you know, the wrecking crew was all over the top of the charts. They were playing on pet sounds. They were playing on Beach Boys records. They were pet sounds. I mean that that was the band on Pet Sounds. Um and they were the band for all of the uh Mamas and Papas hits and they just played on a lot. They were, they were the white equal of the Funk Brothers. Okay, yeah. You had a band which was basically playing on all the Motown hits, and you had a band which was playing on all the white records that, well, that right. weren't weren't being performed by self-contained bands. Right. But at the same time, things like Mr. Tambourine Man is just basically uh, Roger McGuinn on his 12th string with the Wrecking Crew. But the individual members of the Wrecking Crew, you know, you had Glenn Campbell, who, who has some Beatles ties, but not a whole lot. But you had Leon Russell. Yes. Now, now there is a guy who would go on to be in the concert for Bangladesh. Uh, he hung around Apple a whole lot in the late 60s. You know, he, he wrote that song for Chris O'Dell, Sweet Pisces Apple Lady. Well, not one of his big hits. Oh, well. <laughs> but, but. Um, yes, and he was on Day After Day. By bad figure. Yeah, he was, he definitely has uh, Beatles connections. I was playing on one of George Harrison's records one day, and we were in, a, in take 168. And I went up to him and said, George, do you want me to play the same thing 168 times, or do you want me to play 168 different things? Because this is driving me crazy. I didn't, I didn't like to do that. But some people, I mean, he was overdubbing on, on my wedding album. I had one of his songs on there. He just played a guitar solo. And it was great. I said, well, that's good. And he said, oh, no, that's not quite good. Let me play it again. So he played, I had 40 track machine. And he played 25 more solos. I kept all of them. And we got to the end of solo 25. And I said, well, George, listen to this one. See what you think. I played it. And he said, well, that's great. What is that? And I said, that's number one. So, you know, he sort of weaves his way in and out of the of both the of monkeys and the Beatles stories. Yes. In regards to our topic, I think that there came a point where they all met in England. Well, you were present for uh, some of the recording of Day in the Life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we were there for the big session. And, and I, was, I actually stayed uh, with uh, John during a, a big port of that time, and he was bringing home acetates from the studio and so forth and that was great to listen to him in his company before pepper was released between the two seasons of the tv show right and mickey seemed to uh gravitate towards paul you were at some of the sergeant pepper sessions yeah i i was in england doing a press junket actually and uh i went over and met paul uh and it was kind of a little press thing did he know Mon- you no we had never met okay. yeah he knew of me of course because the monkeys was was huge over there at the time 
And um, uh, we went, just him and I, we had dinner at his house, and he invited me to a session at Abbey Road Studios the next day. So we're doing a new album. And um, I, he invited me down. <laughs> it's actually a funny story. I don't know if you have time, but I was expecting this incredible, crazy, love fest, be in psycho, jello, freak out, beetle, hippie, carnaby thing. I don't know what I was thinking. So I got all dressed up in my paisley bell bottoms and my tie-dyed underwear and the beads in my hair up. And I must look like a cross between Char- uh, Charlie Manson and Ronald McDonald. <laughs> well, that's the <laughs> like, 70s for Right, you. exactly. Yeah. And so, and I go down to Abbey Road Studios in the middle of the day, and it looks like my high school gymnasium. It's fluorescent lights, just the four guys in jeans and t-shirts, sitting in folding chairs, playing. And I must have looked like such a... And I'm like, well, man, where are the girls? A little overdressed? Yeah, a little overdressed. And John Lennon, I'll never forget, he says, hey, monkey man. That's what he called me, monkey man. You want to hear what we're working on, and... And he points up to George Martin, and I heard the tracks of Good Morning, Good Morning. Uh, that was the song I remember hearing off of us. And then I went back for the big final chord. They had a big party for the big final chord at Day in the Life and, and a couple of other times. It was the big, great. Fi- the big final chord. Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow, you just blew me away. That was fun. That was good days. I bet it was fun. Good days. And uh, John and Michael Nesmith. And Nesmith would show up in the Day in the Life video. Yes. And, you know, I presume that uh, Harrison and Tor made a connection because Peter would play banjo on Wonderwall. And then later, after the Beatles had broken up, Peter Tork actually talks about staying uh, with George at Friar Park for a period of time. So they all made a connection. And uh, I've always thought that was cool. Wonderwall is one of my favorite albums. So the fact that Peter's on Well, that and, and the fact that Hendrix opened for the Monkees and he would almost immediately fall into the Beatles circle. This is like six degrees of Kevin Bacon or something. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that's, <laughs> that, that's kind of why we're doing this show. Is that, oh, that's true. Is the point being that there, there are a lot of connections. There would be anyway, because you're talking about two groups of record-making entities, however you want to describe the monkeys. Were they, were they an actual group? Were they not? They were certainly the face, and they were selling the records. Yeah, and, and they all had different views of what it is they were doing, what it is that had worth to them. You know, I, I think... Both Mickey and Dave, Davey believed that they were paid actors. I mean, they were doing a job. Although the acceptance of the Beatles meant a lot to the four monkeys. Oh, yes. Their approval always had a huge impact on them. I think they all commented at one time. Yeah, my favorite quote from Mickey Dolan's after they had returned was like, you know, are we a real rock group? I don't know. That's like asking those guys on Star Trek whether they're ready to go up on the next Apollo mission or not. <laughs> right. And that was his view of it. And, you know, in the whole swirling of show business, I don't know what got said to any one of them. So, you know, Peter seemed to believe that he had been promised that he would be part of making the records. And when he showed up with his guitar, everybody's like, what are you, what are you doing? We've already kept the tracks. Yeah, that, that was in particular, that's that first album. Yeah, but that first album set how it was going to go. Yeah. Um, I think the agreement to, to let Nesmith have songs on the albums, I don't know who made that agreement. From my read, it sounds like that it was made, and Don Kirshner was not in on it necessarily and kind of put up with it. So Nesmith's songs never had the weight of the decisions that Don Kirshner made because whether or not a Nesmith song was on a single for a little bit me, a little bit you was the thing that broke up that agreement and Kirshner left the project. Well, and that's why something like the, the next record that, uh, that Mickey is putting out, uh, Dolan sings Nesmith. That should be interesting. Yes. I've heard good things about it. I'll check that one out. Once the TV show ended, uh, they, the monkeys kind of just sort of limped along for a year or two. Uh, they had to fulfill their record contract, although much like the Beatles, they would sort of slowly drift away one at a time. Twerk left first. And I think he had the misfortune, I would say. He bought himself out of the contract. 
which cost them money. And Nesbitt hung on so that he wouldn't have to do that. But as soon as he could get out, he was out. The only album that he's not on is that last album, Changes. Right, which is a, a totally an album you know made by the guys that uh, Kirshner had picked in the early days, you know the, the New York songwriters. And there's a song on there called "Oh My My," which is not the Ringo song. <laughs> right, because Ringo wrote his uh, "Oh My My." So. Yeah. So you know, by by 1970, it was all over. I think the joke within the group was, you know, by the time. It ended, there would be just one guy in the album called The Monkey. Really, almost at about the same time that, that the Beatles came to an end uh, with Let It Be, you know, June of 1970, right. The Monkeys also came to an end. Right. Did people know? I mean, I guess people would have had to have known. You you only had two of them on the cover. But did they know what? That, that the Monkeys were, were over and done with. I mean, you know, again... I can't speak for what was known historically at that point in time. And you, as a as a fan of the era, did people know that the monkeys were over with? Not from an official standpoint, I don't think. I think that the feeling <laughs> were like, yeah, they're over with because their their last several singles were not anything. And then that last album, I mean, their sales were pretty pitiful and they put out a single and it did nothing. The feeling was, yeah, the monkeys thing was over. It's kind of interesting that the coincidence that these two ends would happen at about the same time within, you know, a few weeks of each other. Right. And strangely enough, uh, same is true with uh, Simon and Garfunkel. So. One thing we didn't mention, Head. Is Head worse than Magical Mystery Tour? I... Oh, no. Head is actually kind of funny. You you like Head. I, I don't get it. Well, it's because it was taking what they were doing and making fun of it. It was like, here was this thing that was the monkeys, this what everybody viewed, the ridiculous of it. And they would make fun of that. And, and because that image of them was so entrenched in people's minds, this other thing was weird and didn't make sense. But there's just some scenes in it that are, are great. You know, well, but the, uh, some of Magical Mystery Tour is great as well. Yeah. And in fact, it could be argued that, that Magical Mystery Tour is as monkeys as the Beatles ever got. You know, the, the whole business of them dressing up as wizards and, and Mal and, oh, they're having a lovely time. That That's, you know, all straight out of the monkeys TV show. Right. That's a good point. Possibly because as the monkeys were doing it that in their show... Magic Mystery Tour was just kind of made up on the spot. There's a, a commonality to that. And so you're right. It's as close to the monkeys the Beatles ever got. But I think Head is a, a thing where you either love it or you hate it. I don't um, hate it, but I just don't get it. Well, <laughs> the, the whole dandruff thing, you know, the bit of Head that I like is the porpoise song and jumping into the water. That's cool. But the rest of the film. The monkeys is dandruff. It's like, well, okay. Well, it had more to do with the commercial. It, it would be hard to just sit and try to defend or explain e- either of those films. Yeah, I will admit the first time I saw it, I was confused. But uh, as I've watched it several times, and I'm more aware of the humor now than I was when it came out, and I was 13. The basic thing is that it was a drug riff. Yeah. It was a dope riff. It was a fun, you know, everybody everybody sits around totally smashed, and somebody starts, you know, where's John, where's John? Oh, he's still trying to merge at the roundabout. I mean, it you know, turns into one of those one funny dope story after another. Well, maybe I need to give it another spin. Well, I think it would be worth it if you... A Sunday when I've got nothing better to do. Right. Like you say, right. the last one which got us into this topic was, you know, uh, watch, <laughs> watching this this VH1 biopic, which incidentally they did a pop up video for the biopic, and that kind of amuses me. <laughs> so both groups basically had a struggle to who they were going to be once they weren't Beatles slash Monkeys anymore. Into the seventies, their paths would continue to cross, uh, most notably with the Hollywood Vampires. Yeah, I think uh, Ringo did some commercials. We well, did the Pizza Hut commercial. Wrong lads. 
<laughs> right. Also, with Ringo taking taking Nesmith's place. No, <laughs> they should have put Ringo in a wool hat in that ad. <laughs> right. They continue to bump into each other. And the monkeys have had uh, a significant afterlife. I mean, uh, they're still running through in syndication. They had a big uh, return when the when uh, MTV and VH1 really got into it, really at the same time that the Beatles cartoons came back. Right. You know, that was all part of the same package. Well, it's, it's sad because now that we're towards the end of the show, but one of the things I wanted to, to bring up earlier was I think that the Al Brodak's um, Beatles cartoon series had an influence on what the monkeys looked like. Weren't they contemporaries of each other? The cartoons started in 65. Okay. And, and it didn't go that long. It went through the Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane. I mean, that's the last cartoon. Right. Whereas I like those, I think the, the whole show was struggling. So their personalities didn't match at all what was going down. The cartoon, you mean? Yes. Of course, they really had almost nothing to do with it. They just signed off on it. Right. And maybe that's that's something to think about as well, is that uh, just as the monkeys had a problem with how they were perceived, because they had to go out there every day and be people. And so even though the records were selling, and that's what Kirshner was like, hey, you're getting these great checks from all this. It wasn't real to them. And perhaps by, you know, 67 and, and you know, the Beatles themselves, it's like that part of show business isn't really relevant to us anymore. Yeah, we don't have much to do with it. Maybe it was just the contract, but it didn't fit who they were. Well, really, in help, it's like they saw the other side of it. It's like, well, no, we're, we're done with this. And I mean, that also may be part of why the third movie was never made. Right. Talent for Loving, I think, would have been a disaster. Oh, absolutely. And now, after everything we've gone through, the Joe Orton script was certainly intriguing, but don't know. It wouldn't have fit. I mean, you know, maybe a little bit later, but I don't think it would have fit not then. No. People yeah. weren't ready for that. No, no, they weren't. I always like the uh, four sides of a personality idea, but that might have been playing up to what people's perceptions of what the Beatles were versus reality. That might have come up against that, but it was an interesting idea. They ended up doing it exactly right with Yellow Submarine. Again, even though they didn't have a whole lot to do with it, the fact that they actually got Liverpool people to come in and punch up the script and make it beatle if you will. Right. And it was animated so, so these characters can live in that fashion forever. There's a reason why the most promoted image of the Beatles these days is to a certain extent the Yellow Submarine Beatles. Yeah, because the people who were there at the beginning were all old farts now. And so it's, you know, kids still come to Yellow Submarine and, and embrace it. And so it, it grows up in new generations. Both Danny and Sean, they were, are noted as saying, you know, Oh, dad was a beetle. Right. Gee, right. I wonder what that meant. Right. That's one of the funny things about life. You know, your kids don't know you as a young person. It will be interesting for the next generation when you really do have sort of all this film and video of, uh, of your parents, uh, being idiots. <laughs> Of John sniffing a bottle of Coke. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's that as well. <laughs> and the monkeys never quite went that far, I don't think. Uh, I, they never really had someone like Lennon until Jack Nicholson came along to, yeah. to subvert things. Oh, yeah. yeah. To just put a pen in it. Yeah. Well, you know, Zappa's in that too. Zappa and Ringo in 200 Motels. Right. Right. Yeah, he's... That, that was a cool connection, I thought. Really, sort of after that first meeting at uh, Brian's party, they would just keep sort of intersecting at various points, which is, again, not unusual because they were all in the music business. That's the Beatles and the Monkees. Uh, they had their connections. They were, the Monkees were certainly influenced in the final product by the Beatles, uh, but musically, I don't think there was all that much influence, not any more than 
just sort of any other 60s musicians that were was were listening to what the Beatles were doing and saying, oh, well, I'll have some of that and I'll have some of that. Very infrequently did they say, we want to do a song like that. Yeah, I think the only um, story they've ever told of that is um, that the riff on Pleasant Valley Sunday was influenced by the riff from I Want to Tell You, which works out on the timeline. And Carol King's demo of Pleasant Valley Sunday is amazing, by the way. Oh, I love that. It, it also, her demo of it, there's a chord change that totally changes the feel of the song, which I just adore. I mean, uh, because that one chord change makes the song a little less poppy. I mean, they were going for a, a hit record, so I totally understand that the, the change is interesting also right around that time right after they'd gone to england um, mickey would write a song um called randy scouse get the the four kings of emi right but it still doesn't sound like a Beatles song it, it references them but right right i was just putting that in there as as a connection in a way that you know they had a an impact on that they had their connections the beatles sort of recognize them as oh well they're they're kind of interesting although i think they were probably really more interested in them as actors and as tv people than as uh musicians although they would come to to recognize their musicianship more and then uh mccartney did certainly recognize uh nesmith as nesmith grew into this the one of the progenitors of uh, what we now call videos, you know, the as we move from promotional films into videos, right? There's a there's a clip out there of Nesmith actually presenting Paul with the, like the very first video music award, <laughs> right? Although Paul wasn't there, yeah. But he, he gives this the speech, and that was sometime sometime in the early '80s because the the coming up videos in the clip. Well, you know. You also have to keep in mind that that trip was, I mean, they didn't know who the monkeys were. They were coming over and they were meeting in large part because it was like, here come the new phenomenon and they're going to meet, you know, the, the reigning Kings. And so they didn't know these people at all. So it, it took a meeting to know, you know the weight of them. You know, are you a real musician? Well, Nesbitt certainly was. Torque and was. Torque certainly was. But yeah. So, but they didn't know that until they met them. They met. Yeah. Again, they did have respect, I think, for the TV show, and they they were they knew comedy. Yes. Yes. John, John and Paul in particular, they they knew, and George as well. They 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 all knew comedy, and they they each had commented on the Marx Brothers ish nature of what they were doing, much more than what they themselves were wont to do. Well, they, they found themselves in the midst of such controversy. I think that there was uh, probably a good amount of sympathy from the Beatles towards these guys who were like, man, we were just making records and, you know, now we're liars and all of this. Yes. So, all right. We, we have learned that uh, McCartney 321. Since we're talking about TV shows, uh, McCartney <laughs> 321 premieres on Hulu. We're going to see have all six episodes released on Friday, July 16th. Each one runs roughly a half hour. Right. The promotional copies that people have seen indicate that there is some interesting stuff in there. there there's a mix of the old stories and some interesting stuff. I think we're going to probably do two of the McCartney 321 episodes so we'll do three shows reviewing the entire series. Okay. And we'll start with that next week. I'm looking forward to seeing it. All right. Mm. So we'll be back with that very soon. And more stuff. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at when they was fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, 
San Francisco, California. second the fans will dig it they've waited long enough i've just got to get the other lads to agree i think i can convince them i'll say glad the time has come to eat our pizza crust first good idea ringo cool. yeah. stuffed crust pizza from pizza hut with cheese baked into a new thinner crust you'll want to eat it crust first now with free garlic dipping sauce wrong lads large is 9.99 with a monkey, people say we're monkey around, but we're too busy singing to pull anybody down. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. 